All right, well, John Owen once said that hatred of sin, hatred of sin as sin lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. So hatred of sin is at the root of growing in sanctification and putting to death sin. If you don't hate sin, why would you put it to death? All right, that's the idea that John Owen was getting at. So we ought to hate sin, right? John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We should have no quarter with the enemy of sin. It dishonors God, discredits the Christian's testimony, and destroys lives. And it impacts the society we live in. And today we're going to consider a sin that, like all other sins, brings destruction on society. And that's the sin of drunkenness. The sin of drunkenness. So today we'll look at this issue um, by taking into account as many aspects as we can in our brief time together, theological, historical, societal, Um, I had intended to cover four verses today, but I think I acquired the Charles Spurgeon syndrome, and I have an entire lecture on half a verse. (laughs) So, um, but sometimes it's good to slow down and uh, look at the words from as many angles as we can and examine the effects, in this case, of a sin that the Bible forbids, the sin of drunkenness. So the text for today is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the key here is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. So consider then, first of all in this text, the clear command given by the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. Do not get drunk with wine. Here's an example of the preceptive will of God. Don't get drunk. And being the author of all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit never contradicts Himself. And this wisdom that we read here in Ephesians was also revealed in the book of Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 20, where we read, Be not among drunkards, and many other places as well. So let it be noted then, first of all, that this is not a suggestion, it's not a hint, it's not an intimation, it's a command, a law, and a mandate from the Holy Spirit revealed through the Apostle Paul that you are not to get drunk with wine. We do well then to pause today as we consider this topic and consider the sinfulness of drunkenness. As God in His unmatched wisdom saw fit to preserve for eternity this practical command, don't get drunk. Now the section on drunkenness in Ephesians chapter 5 is the beginning of a section on the great practical nature of true holiness. Being filled with the Spirit, which we'll spend more time on next week, leads to holy living in the most practical of places, the home, right? The home. It's no coincidence that immediately after the section contrasting drunkenness with being filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Apostle Paul enters into one of the most detailed sections in all of Scripture regarding conduct in the home. The Word of God, as J.C. Wiles said, specifies minutely what a man, what a holy man ought to do and be in his own family and by his own fireside if he abides in Christ. Mm. So if you thought Christianity was a religion that merely regulates your conduct in the church or out in the world, you thought wrong. It is a religion, the only true religion, of course, which touches the most practical aspects of your life, everything you do, outside of your home and even in your home. There is no command of Scripture um, that does not touch every area of our life. So as far as definitions go, 
Paul provides one for us in the text. How is drunkenness described here in the text? Paul says it is debauchery. Debauchery. Or as the Geneva Bible or KJV puts it, wherein is excess. The NASB renders it dissipation. All right, so I have those three words there. Excess, debauchery, dissipation. All, right, all three of these words help us understand what Paul is getting at when he speaks of drunkenness. First of all, it's a state of excess, right? In this case, an excess of wine, too much of something, in which case your reason is disordered, your judgment is impaired, and your ability to act as a man ought to act is diminished. You are given to an excess. right? And debauchery, as the ESV translates it, Webster defines it as an excess in the pleasures of the table, chiefly an excessive unlawful indulgence of lust. So it's again this idea of taking to yourself too much, too much of something, an unlawful indulgence of lust. And then dissipation. In scientific terms, dissipation has to do with the act of scattering. If some of you uh, know science or into science, you know that dissipation, heat dissipates, right? It goes from one place to another where there's less heat. Uh, this is the idea of dissipation or even a vapor, like if a teapot hisses, the, the steam comes forth. Try as you may with your hands, you can't control that vapor, right? It spreads out, it's loose, it has no form, no substance to our eyes at least, no structure. And the moral use of this term dissipation is likewise characterized by this scattered lifestyle, right? This lack of structure, there's no order to your life. There's no discipline. There's no, there's no path that you're walking on, you're loose. You're all over the place. That's why Webster defined dissipation as a dissolute, irregular course of life. You're here and there. You have no structure, no form. Wandering from object to object to object in pursuit of pleasure. A course of life usually attended with careless and exorbitant expenditure of money and indulgences and vices which impair or ruin both health and fortune. So the Apostle Paul says drunkenness is dissipation. It is a scattering a wandering, a looseness in living that, living that is condemned by the Holy Spirit here in our text. So it should be beyond clear to any honest reader of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is diametrically opposed to drunkenness. There's no way around that. He's opposed to all that it stands for. The fruit of the Spirit includes the antithesis of drunkenness, temperance, or self-control. Right? The works of the flesh, on the other hand, those works that wage war against the Holy Spirit, Include what? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Galatians 5.21 Now the spirit-filled person, on the other hand, lives a life in which his passions and habits are ordered, controlled, and regulated. Now this goes beyond not getting drunk. Right? It encompasses a regulation of all our bodily and mental desires. Loose living in general is condemned in Scripture here in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere. In fact, it's a general looseness in living that will cause a man to turn to drink in the first place. Right? The looseness, this dissipation, this dissolute life will then be compounded with further dissipation and lack of self-control, propriety, discipline, order, chastity, and godliness. And the Apostle Paul knew that the saints in Corinth were surrounded by people who threw caution to the wind and indulged in wine with no restraint. 
And it's been noted by commentators that some of the pagans in Paul's day incorporated drunkenness into their religious rituals. Right? And this is what Paul may have had chiefly in mind when he's telling them not to get drunk with wine. And that may in fact be so. And it may further be noted that such is not the case today. Right? Drunkenness is no longer presented as a religious duty in our society, something that people do as part of their worship of a pagan god. And therefore, some might say, Paul's command doesn't apply to us. And that's the same logic that people use uh, when they make the audacious claim that since homosexual practices were part of pagan religious worship in Paul's day, Paul was only condemning them in religious contexts. If you know, if you've had that conversation with some people trying to justify homosexuality from the Bible, they'll make that claim. Well, Paul was just condemning it in religious context. But that such a claim falls apart with any serious reading of the Bible, no honest student of Scripture will doubt. Here's what I'd note, though. Modern man, right? Modern man sits in judgment of all who've gone before him. Right? Modern man, we, we've, we've achieved so much with science, we sit in judgment of all who've gone before us. And modern man seems to conclude that because certain vices were conducted in a religious context in ancient times, they were invariably worse than they are today. And so you can have the directors of Planned Parenthood shake their heads at those barbaric and pre-scientific worshippers of Molech, convinced that today we've achieved a more refined condition, if for no other reason than that they don't mix the supernatural with their butchery of children. But Chesterton once wrote, he said, the only thing more absurd than burning a man for his philosophy is to have no philosophy at all. And the modern man condemns the former while embracing the latter. The modern man says, how, how barbaric that these, they would do these practices and they would burn someone for their views. And today, you better have no view at all um, or you are going to be the one condemned. So I would, like, I would venture that the only thing worse than getting drunk for a pagan religious service is getting drunk for no reason at all. Now that the kingdom of Christ has made great bounds in the past 2,000 years, I don't doubt. But that sinners have become less sinful in their sinning, I can't accept. Bad men go from bad to worse, even as the light shines brighter and brighter all around them. And drunkenness is just as much, if not more so, a problem today as it was in Paul's day. So we would do well then in the spirit of encouraging a godly hatred of the sin of drunkenness to consider the results of this violation of God's law. Now, Dr. Benjamin Rush was one of the founding fathers of this nation, and he spoke strongly against the intemperate use of alcohol, alcohol, the immoderate use of alcohol. In fact, he went so far as to say that spiritist, spiritist liquors, as he called them then, destroy more lives than the sword. He went on to describe the impact as he looked around at American society in his day, the seventh, late 1700s, and he described the impact of drunkenness, right? Echoing these words from Proverbs where it says, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. And this is what Rush said in the 1700s. Let us next turn our eyes from the effects of spirits, right, or the liquors, upon health and life to their effects upon property. And here fresh scenes of misery open to our view. Among the inhabitants of cities, they produce debts, disgrace, and bankruptcy. Among farmers, they produce idleness with its usual consequences, such as houses without windows, barns without roofs, 
gardens without enclosures, fields without fences, hogs without yokes, sheep without wool, meager cattle, feeble horses, and half-clad, dirty children without principles, morals, or manners. This picture is not exaggerated. I appeal to the observations of every man whether such scenes of wretchedness do not follow the tracks of spiritus liquors. So he looked around him and saw the effect of this sin of drunkenness, and that it destroyed society, destroyed homes. And by the way, Rush was among the founders of the Sunday School Society. Uh, and Sunday School was initially uh, designed to provide education, mm-hmm. firmly rooted in the Bible, to young people who had to work during the week and didn't have an opportunity to learn otherwise. So, um, but I digress. That's just a fun fact about Benjamin Rush. <laughs> he loved the Bible. He, he had a passion for the Bible and believed every child should read it and know it and cling to it. But anyway, almost 200 years before Rush, going back to the early 1600s, there's a man by the name of John Robinson. John Robinson was the pastor of the Pilgrim Fathers, one of the most um, underappreciated and unknown pastors in church history. He prepared a people who came to America and established Plymouth Plantation. But he likewise sternly condemned a lack of sobriety, a lack of um, having the control to not be given over to anything. And he called, he said it was a base and beastly thing for a man to give himself to eating and drinking. He called it swinish, right? For a man to follow the pigs and be so inordinate as to hurt, e- him, hurt either his body or his mind by an excess. And he said, whereas other sins deprive man of God's image, the vice of drunkenness deprives man of his own image, deprives man of man's image, lowering him to the level of a beast controlled by his desires. A man, he said, who takes more to himself than is his due cannot either give God or man their due. And drunkards may justly receive the woeful description given by Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And God holds men accountable for what they consume, and God will not be mocked. Right? You will reap what you sow. And so consider well that the dissolute use, the intemperate, the immoderate, the unlawful use of either alcohol or food is a violation of God's law, God's preceptive will. So again, as we talked about previously, let us not be ignorant of this. Let us not be foolish, but let us understand what the will of the Lord is. Robinson taught that while your body may crave many things, right? Our body craves many things. It'll be satisfied with a small proportion. He said the body is reasonable to deal with if we give it but what we owe and not what we can. If you continually, you could take more. You could give your body more. And, he, and I think he talked about, you know, people saying that, well, I have all this food. I might as well eat it. He said it's the same as someone who's cooking a, I don't know what he said, but Matt cooking a steak or something. And you just keep putting salt on it because, well, I have all this salt. I might as well pour it all on my steak. It's going to be horrible. right? <laughs> just because you have it doesn't mean you have to consume it. And he said something else I think American culture has a whole lot of here. He said, I think it may be truly said, and this is a man, he didn't live in our time with so much abundance. He said, 
However hard it's been for some in this world at times, he thinks that more have received hurt by eating too much than too little. And I don't think he's simply talking about belly aches there from eating too much. I think what he's saying is a lack of sobriety, a control in meat and drink, brings about further dissipation in other areas of life. So saints, this is a command in Paul's writings to the Ephesians, the command to not be drunk is a call to be sober-minded and self-controlled in all things, not merely in drink. Do you regulate your life in terms of drink, in terms of food, in terms of entertainment, television, video games, money, vacation, right? your time, whatever it may be? The world thinks freedom is that which allows you to indulge in as much of whatever you want. But biblical freedom, freedom in Christ, means you are free to rule over all things that God has given to you to be used for His glory and your good. To be self-governed, self-controlled. So an excess in anything is forbidden. That wine or alcohol is among the first things a loose or careless man turns to ought not to be a surprise. right? For the children of Israel have been warned of this thousands of years, uh, a thousand years before Paul's day when God gave the law to Moses. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. Now here you have the case law regarding a rebellious son. Now here's a passage where critics of the Bible know enough about to create a straw man, but they don't know enough about it to give him a brain. <laughs> You may have heard it said that in the Old Testament, a child would be stoned for not taking out the trash. And critics of the Bible who throw around claims like that really just demonstrate that they haven't read the text. Mm -hmm. Regarding the refusal to take out the trash, or the ancient Near East equivalent, whatever that may have been, the Bible has made abundantly clear the solution, the rod and reproof. Right? Discipline your children if they're not listening to you. Disobedience was to be dealt with with loving discipline and correction. Now here in Deuteronomy 21, we do not have a young boy simply disobeying his mother. Here we have the case of a debauched, vile, dissolute, prolificate, lewd, licentious man. Now I'll pause to say that as I was thinking about this, it's my understanding that the Eskimos have at least a dozen words for snow, revealing the importance of snow in their culture. But we don't have many words for snow, at least not that I'm aware of in English, but we sure do have a lot of words for sinfulness in the English language. And that might not be a bad thing because it should remind us of two things at least. One, the degree to which we are to ponder the sinfulness of sin and the impact it has on a man or woman. And also the amount of sin in our world which demands such a vocabulary requires us to preach against it and hate it. In either case, one of the benefits of considering God's law is to see the danger and destruction of sin and the evil it brings about. So let's read this text and consider the charges that are brought against this man. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 
Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. The stubbornness and rebelliousness of this young man is manifested not in failing to complete his chore chart, but in a dissolute, debauched lifestyle, consisting and really culminating in, culminating in gluttony and drunkenness. The scripture describes this man as a vile man bereft of modesty and morality. He's a glutton who lacks all decency and the ability to control his passions. He's a slave to alcohol and he's destructive to both the family and society. The weight of these sins, disobedience, stubbornness, riotousness, drunkenness, hard-heartedness, it's not a private sin. This is a man who's a menace to society. The weight of those sins is enough for God to command the Israelite society to execute such a destructive man. The law of God was to be followed in the context that where the community where sin was hated. Right? And the psalmist sings with passion about his love of God's law and his hatred of sin. We are to hate every false way. And we ought to hate the false way of drunkenness. It's a vice that leads to death, destruction, and ultimately, like all sin, hell. And how many of even us in this room know people who have destroyed their lives by committing this sin? It's almost one person in every family, extended family that you can think of that has given themselves over to this sin. And it is a sin. The scripture describes it as a sin. And it is a sin which must be preached against as the gospel is proclaimed. Just as the sins of adultery, lust, fornication, greed, murder, idolatry, and all those sins must be preached against, men must be counseled to count the cost in coming after Christ. For the demands that Christ will make on someone's life will not stop at the church door, but they'll reach the home, the bedroom, in the case of Christ's prohibition against drunkenness, the cupboard. Right? Everything will be brought under the Lordship of Christ. Now, speaking of the home, all right, as I mentioned this before, we would do well to ask ourselves, why is it that Paul will be following up his discussion on drunkenness with a detailed destruction about order in the family? Why does he follow drunkenness with this detailed description of how the family is to be ordered? Well, if we were to ask the Westminster Divines, the men who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, they might say that because the sin of drunkenness is very much related to the destruction and disordering of the family unit. Now, the Bible accepted, I think it's appropriate to say that the Westminster Standards are among the greatest documents created in all of church history. You have the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism. They're not divinely inspired, absolutely not, but they are painstakingly theological, passionately devotional, and deeply practical. And one of my favorite parts is in the larger catechism. The Ten Commandments are expounded in great detail with the duties required and the sins forbidden of each commandment addressed. These were men who dug deep into Scripture and what God required of them. And it's interesting to note that of the Ten Commandments, the one commandment where the sin of drunkenness is explicitly mentioned in the list of sins forbidden is the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Question 139 says, What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Do you have it there, AJ? Yeah. Yep. I forgot mine, so I'm not sure. Thank you. Wow. 
you have this. All right, so the, the seventh commandment is not to commit adultery. All right, and these, these men, as they were wrestling through these issues, they said, God's law touches every area of life. What are the issues, what are the sins related to the seventh commandment? So just listen to these. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, which they just talked about, are, so here are the sins, adultery, obviously, right? Don't commit adultery. Fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful or dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. Anybody knows what that is? A stew is a brothel. So, forbidding no brothels. Um, and resorting to them. So don't go to one either. Entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. For all the Ten Commandments, they have lists like that. I encourage you to read it and meditate on it. I want to point out that the Westminster Reformers understood the importance the Word of God places on a chaste and regulated life. And they knew that drunkenness is akin to a looseness that will invariably run to other areas of life. And when they looked at the Seventh Commandment to not commit adultery, they realized that gluttony and drunkenness are demonstrative of a life that will be given over to looseness, carelessness, and a lack of structure that will first be demonstrated almost inevitably in the home. You know a drunkard can kind of put on a front outside the home. But if you live with one, and I'm thankful I never had to, but I know people who, who live that way, you know that you fear when that person comes home because drunkenness will first be demonstrated in the home. So the seventh commandment demands chastity, right? In body and mind, affections and words. And drunkenness is not only a deviation from the purity of life required in God's word, but it leads to more deviation and looseness. And just interestingly, the National Institute of Health, it wouldn't surprise the authors of the catechism to know, found that an increase in drunkenness leads to an increase in the divorce rate. Because drunkenness destroys families, destroys homes. And that's why I believe that the writers of that catechism understood that this is a sin forbidden within the seventh commandment. Now, we have to have a complete understanding of this issue. I don't want to get through as much as we can so we can have some time for discussion, hopefully. We need to have a complete understanding of this issue by considering a few more things. Uh, we must not only acknowledge what Paul did say. Right? He said, do not get drunk with wine. But we also must acknowledge what he did not say. He did not say, don't drink wine. And we do well to consider that passage again from Deuteronomy, right? The law of God called for the removal of the sinner, but not the removal of the substance, whether it be food or drink. And a word or two ought to be said about this. I know there's different views on this, but I think the historical reality is important to consider here. And as we've seen, Paul was not the first to warn against the immoderate use of alcohol, nor was he the last. Throughout church history, the near universal position has not been a complete abstinence from alcohol, 
though that decision as a personal choice was not condemned if someone chose that. But the view has been an acceptance of the proper use of alcohol while strongly condemning the improper use of alcohol. And the Puritans and Separatists, who are often, by the world, they're viewed as the most dour of men who ever walked the face of the earth, right? right. Puritan is just a derogatory term, and it was actually back then, too, because they wanted to purify the church. They strongly condemned drunkenness. Remember John Robinson, right? That's a Separatist. That's a Puritan of the highest order, in my mind. But they were not teetotalers. Mm-hmm. They weren't. The proper, moderate, restrained use of alcohol was accepted as godly conduct. In fact, alehouses in Puritan New England, for example, were seen as godly establishments. But they were of a different sort than bars today. I would have a hard time finding the propriety in frequenting a modern-day bar, right, where a flood of excess is encouraged and the litany of other sins are presented. Mm -hmm. The alehouse in New England, in Puritan New England, was of a different sort. In fact, I think it was either Cotton Mather or Increased Mather. He went and, and blessed the alehouse and, and prayed over it and said, may God bless this business. In fact, they had laws that if you were a resident of the town, you could only stay in the alehouse for one hour. It was mainly for travelers passing through to eat and drink and, and rest up to continue their journey. Um, there were laws against drunkenness in, in New England, uh, though there were, they did not forbid wine. So, Beer was more of a staple, right, than, a, than something reserved for the weekend. At a time when water was frequently unhealthy, fermented beverages provided a safe option. In fact, Benjamin Rush, remember him? He was the, in the 1700s. He had this, he spoke strongly against this. He had this scale, a moral and physical thermometer, or a scale of the progress of temperance and intemperance. And so on his scale, he lists all these beverages. Starting at the top, he lists milk, water, small beer, I don't know what that is, cider, perry, wine, porter, and strong beer, as all falling under the temperance category when used moderately. On the other hand, an immoderate or excessive use of the spiritist liquors led to these vices in Russia's words, idleness, peevishness, quarreling, fighting, lying, swearing, obscenity, swindling, perjury, burglary, murder, and suicide. And after listing several diseases that he felt were caused by drunkenness, he listed the possible punishments that follow an excessive use of wine. It says debt, black eyes, rags, <laughs> hunger, hospital, the poorhouse, jail, whipping, and last but not least, the gallows. So these were men who were strongly concerned about the intemperate use of alcohol. And remember, drunkenness is excess. An excess of anything is a violation of God's law. We're to be self-controlled and moderate in all things. An excessive use of food makes you a glutton, even if you're not obese. Right? It's the excess of the thing. An excessive use of alcohol, an excess in drinking, makes you a drunkard, even if you're good at it. Right? Like Isaiah condemned those who were mighty at drinking wine in Isaiah chapter 5. Mm-hmm. It's the excess of the thing. An unlawful or loose use of sex makes you a fornicator or an adulterer. It's strongly condemned. Excess and dissipation is strongly condemned in God's word. Paul warned that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. But men like Luther, Calvin, Knox, men like John Robinson and Benjamin Rush, they did not go beyond the bounds of Scripture and forbid wine. And I fear that where some have, even out of a good motive, where they bound men's, 
men's consciences to abstain from all alcohol, they've actually presented a lower standard of sobriety than God's law mandates. What I mean is this, for example, if you have a society that does that, or a community, it's easy to abstain from one sin, drunkenness, if you can run headlong into another. Gluttony, lust, laziness, right? However, God's Word calls us to a higher standard. or to exercise sobriety in all things. It's easy to forbid one sin and run into others. Remember, hating the sin is different in this case than hating the substance. All right, what happened with prohibition? That's right, so why I have the progressive error up there. Consider what happened when society attempted to deal with the sin of drunkenness, and there were inevitably different motives, but they attempted to deal with the sin of drunkenness in a manner not prescribed in the, in the Bible. So the 18th Amendment forbade the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the United States. Prohibition was an attempt to put man's, man's law in place in order to achieve a good end, right? No more drunkenness. I don't want any drunkenness. It's an evil sin. But there's so much wisdom in God's Word. The problem isn't with the wine. It isn't with the food. It isn't with sex. The problem isn't with the things God has given. The problem is with the ones to whom God gives those things. The problem is with the human heart. So man's abuse of things, whether it's money, food, wine, sex, whatever, has occurred since the fall. Right? The right use of the thing is what we are after. Mm-hmm. Now John Calvin, he had to deal with um, some Manichaean heretics. All right? Manichaeism is a heresy. It predated Calvin. I mean, Augustine, I think, was involved in it for a little bit and left. But th- there's this presentation of the universe as dualistic. Right? And when Calvin was dealing with it, the heretics didn't believe that God could create a substance that could be abused, right? And therefore, when they read the Old Testament in passages like Deuteronomy 14.26, where it says, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink and whatever your appetite craves, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. They looked at a passage like that and said, this is impossible that this could come from a good God, that, that God could allow uh, a substance that would ab- people would abuse And so they concluded that such a law could not have come from a good God. Wine must have come from the devil. And they presented this dualism that that many things on earth are evil, the the physical realm can be evil, and there's this conflict between God and Satan. While there is a conflict between God and Satan, not in the sense of this dualism that um, that the, the, the physical body even, taking it to the extreme, that sex is evil, wine is evil, the physical is evil, and God is beyond that. And Calvin rejected that heresy, Right? Because he believed everything God gives is good. And our responsibility is to use it properly. Mm-hmm. And opposed to this view, increased matter, the, the Puritan of England said, wine comes from God, but the drunkard from the devil. Mm-hmm. And that's at least, it's pithy, but it's at least a more biblical perspective mm-hmm. than saying that wine itself is from the devil. Which, if you know your history of Methodism and it wouldn't surprise me if that has been preached from the church in the past. Now, prohibition happened in the context of the progressive movement when man largely turned to the government to solve society's problems. Instead of turning to the gospel, man turned to the state. And the state makes a poor, poor savior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, and as I was thinking about this, the optimism 
you know, optimism for Christianity, in a sense, waned after the progressive era turned into the Great Depression, and then the Great Depression turned into World War II, and many theologians rejected any optimism about Christ's kingdom, seeing what the world had come to uh, after the devastation of World War II. But I would remind them, if I could, that man had abandoned God's standard long before even the First World War, with the rise of progressivism in the 1890s and even before. That prohibition failed miserably is only evidence that man's attempt to forbid what God's law has allowed is destined for failure. Right? It's not evidence that the kingdom of Christ won't continue. It's evidence that if you go against God's word, you're not going to be blessed. And remember Deuteronomy 21, right? When the man became so hardened and reprobate that the state punished him, the idea was that all Israel shall hear and fear. The gluttony and drunkenness did not cause the debauchery. They were part of the debauchery. The rebellious son wasn't punished because he got drunk once. His life was marked by recklessness and prolificacy. With prohibition, and I don't have time to get into it, but I'm happy to talk about it afterwards, the state actually caused more dissoluteness, more vice, more evil, because it did not address the issue biblically. It caused more problems. And of course, it ended up, the amendment was repealed. It didn't address it biblically because it addressed the substance rather than the abuse of the substance. It was counterproductive. And as I said, to go against God's law in any sphere is sure failure. It was destined to fail. And they seemed to think that if you could remove the substance, you could remove the problem. Right? If we can just remove alcohol, then we can solve the problem. But God's law said different. The substance wasn't the issue. The man was. It didn't call for the removal of the wine or the food, but for the removal of the incorrigible son. Prohibition led to more heavy drinking, more crime, more vice, not less. Now, in closing, I want to mention one thing, too, as we talk about this issue. It applies to a lot of different areas of society. Uh, earlier this week in school, I was playing a, a video clip for my students, my 12th graders. And in the video, it was a message, likely a conference message, probably, delivered by Rusty Thomas, who uh, he's a passionate Christian man uh, committed to ending abortion. And um, he's preaching against fighting against abortion while standing on the authority of God's word. And he gives this lecture in what appears to be a church building. Behind him is a cross uh, where a local church meets. And um, in his lecture, he's talking about how the civil governments ought to stand for life and protect life and not kill it. And, uh, you know, applying the sixth commandment, don't murder. And the response from more than one of my students was, that's, that's kind of unholy, isn't it, to be talking about that in the sanctuary? To bring an issue like abortion and the political aspects of trying to stop the murder of babies into the holy place of the sanctuary. I was taken back a little bit by that. But I reminded my students that the word of God applies to every single sphere of life. And one of the key principles of the Reformation was this idea that the divide between the sacred and the secular is a falsehood. There's no divide between the sacred and the secular. There's not a few select areas where the word of God may be applied to, and then everything else falls under man's wisdom. Everything comes under the authority of God's word. And there's been this, this dangerous, pernicious trend in Christendom to separate the sacred from the secular. And that ought not be so, right? Any deviation from God's perceptive will, whether in an individual's life, a family, or a society, 
will lead to negative consequences. And we see these themes in the command to refrain from drunkenness. Right? Every area of life is sacred. There's not one area of life that God's commandments don't touch on. And furthermore, when God's word is not applied correctly to society, things don't go well. Which is why it's important that we teach the full counsel of God on every issue. There's no area of life that is limited and that is off limits from God's word. In closing, I want to mention one thing. Consider the two substances given to the church in the Lord's Supper. Bread and wine. Isn't it interesting that you see the two substances in view for gluttony and drunkenness are the same two substances that Christ instituted for use in the Lord's Supper. Wine and food are not evil. We are, apart from Christ. Wine, food, or a host of other things are sanctified when used properly for the glory of God. And we are sanctified in Christ by faith. Christ makes all things right. He deals with our problem of excess, right? Giving us the Holy Spirit that we might walk self-controlled, moderately, governing our lives. We go beyond. We transgress. We push the borders. And so in our passage here, we're called to, as the Genevan Reformer said, to not be like the, the dissolute banquets or gatherings of the unfaithful. We are to be sober, right? We're to have sober and holy assemblies of the faithful. May we be those who are sober-minded, diligent in our use of all things, not just wine, all things. As we're reminded in Paul's counsel to the Ephesians here, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And he will follow that up with this wonderful explanation of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and contrary to being led away in excess, to be self-governed, to be filled with the Word, and to be ordered in your family, in your job, in every area of life. That's the call from the Holy Spirit in our text, to not be given over to an immoderate use of anything. Any thoughts, comments, questions?